I'm curious how many of you have ever uh, been guilty of making a false assumption. <laughs> really? Wow, you're an honest bunch this morning. I mean, you came to a misconception based upon your initial observations, but then when the truth finally came out, you realized it was a totally different thing. And whether it is something you want to admit or not, and many of you were admitting it this morning, the truth is that we can often make wrong judgments. And in our scripture text for this morning, we see Jesus correcting misconceptions that the Jewish people not only had about him, but about their faith. And the reason correction in this area is so vitally important is because misconceptions can greatly uh, affect our view of Jesus. It impacts our lives and it manifests itself in multiple undesirable ways. As an example, if I were to ask you, why did Jesus come to earth? Well, whenever you get the answer to that question wrong or forget the answer altogether, it has the ability to really reduce our idea of just who Christ is. It can prevent us from truly making him and giving him lordship over our lives. It makes us start to see Jesus as just one of many big elements in our lives, which opens the doors for us to have other priorities that fall ahead of him. And then what happens is we modify the, the Christian faith to fit into the current leanings of our society. And there are Christian movements and denominations who have made this mistake. They have reduced Christianity into a feel-good faith, devoid of any need for a real savior. Well, as we continue in our series from the book of John, we're gonna be studying chapter 10, where Jesus clearly tells us who he is. In preparation, you can go ahead and turn there to John chapter 10, and while you're doing that, let me provide you with some context. Last week, you will recall, Pastor Chris presented chapter nine, where Jesus healed the beggar who had been born blind. And he did so on the Sabbath, and this was a huge mistake in the eyes of the Pharisees, the religious leaders of that day, because they said it violated the law that you were not to work on the Sabbath. So they decided to launch an investigation into the healing. Well, the beggar did not know who Jesus was, and yet he still defended him to these Pharisees, and that, and that resulted in him eventually being kicked out of the synagogue. He was excommunicated. Essentially, his church privileges had been revoked, which carried with it a worse social stigma than his former status as a beggar. Well, when Jesus later, later met the man, he revealed himself to the man, and that man put his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And as you can imagine, the Pharisees were not all that happy about that, but they were also not happy with Jesus' references that they were spiritually blind. Well, as we move on to chapter 10, we're gonna see a continuation of, of Jesus' response to these Pharisees. But it, came, it becomes more of a discussion than that with just the Pharisees because while this is all going on, a crowd has gathered. 
And my plan today is to look at Jesus' teachings across the entire 10th chapter, which means we're going to need to, to dive in and out of these 42 verses of text this morning. And what you're going to immediately see is a change. Jesus goes from using the metaphor of blindness that he used in last week's chapter 9 sermon to another familiar one when he starts, starts to speak about shepherds and sheep. If you don't have your Bible, you can follow along behind me. It will be up on the screen. But if you have your Bible, you can follow along as well. We'll be reading John chapter 10. We'll begin with verses 1 through 5. Today, all of these uh, scripture references in John will be in the New International Version. The scriptures say, Very truly, I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in by some other way, is a thief and a robber. The one who enters the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, but the Pharisees did not understand what he was telling them. Perhaps this last verse describes you this morning, that you too don't fully understand what we just read. Well, to grasp what Jesus is saying here, you really need to understand the full idea and Jewish history behind the term shepherd. The Bible first mentions Abel as a shepherd way back in Genesis chapter 4, verse 2. Israel's patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, were also shepherds, along with, with Jacob's sons and even Moses. King David was a shepherd, and in his famous 23rd Psalm, he refers to the Lord as his own shepherd. You see, the shepherd was responsible for the caring and the watching over the flock of sheep. When it came time to find water, the shepherd led them there. When food was scarce, it was the shepherd's role to find a suitable pasture in order for the sheep to graze. The shepherd was also the one who would defend the sheep against attack by wild animals. Well, in very much the same way God cares for us, he meets our needs, he provides for us, and he protects us. So David is right to call the Lord his shepherd, but he wasn't the first one to do so. Jacob did so in Genesis 48, 15, calling him the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day. But the word shepherd also came to represent not only just literal shepherds, but also leaders, both political leaders and religious leaders. A king or a priest cared for Israel much in the same way that a shepherd would take care of his sheep. Psalm 78, verses 70 through 72, describes King David, Israel's greatest king in this way. He, meaning God, chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheep pens. From tending the sheep, he brought him to be the shepherd of his people, Jacob, of Israel, his inheritance. And David shepherded them with integrity of heart, with skillful hands. 
He led them. You'll also see in the scriptures, Israel described as God's flock of sheep. Isaiah 40, 11 uses this metaphor. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. And listen to Jeremiah 31, 10. He who scattered Israel will gather them and will watch over his flock like a shepherd. During times of poor leadership, the nation was described like a flock of sheep without a shepherd. And several verses charge these failed leaders, whether they be a king or whether they be a priest, of being poor shepherds to the nation of Israel. You'll also notice that in scripture, the, the term sheep pen is used. Well, in those days, the typical sheep pen or sheepfold, the place where the sheep were gathered at nighttime, was enclosed by a wall of rocks and it had just one gate. And in the night, the, the shepherd would actually lie down across that gate opening in order to guard from anybody who might try to enter it to steal a sheep. If a thief, if a thief wanted to steal a sheep, then it would have to have come through it in a different part of the enclosure. So understand, when Jesus used the term thief here, he was using it as a clear reference to these Pharisees he was talking to. He was passing judgment on them. Why? Because Jesus was building his flock, which included this formerly blind beggar, but the Pharisees had thrown him out of the synagogue. Warren Wearsby provides more insight into shepherding, specifically referencing the sheepfold when he writes this. It was not unusual for several flocks to be sheltered together in the same fold. In the morning, the shepherds would come, call their sheep, and assemble their own flocks. Each sheep recognized its master's, its own master's voice. The imagery here is quite powerful. Because let's face it, there are a lot of competing voices out there in our culture. Some voices are from other faiths, while others claim that all faiths are valid and lead to the same result. There are voices of materialism and, and individualism that speak to us during the commercial breaks of our favorite TV programs. They tell us how much better off we would be if we buy the things that we deserve, not that we can afford, but that we deserve. And during these shows, we continually see examples of people who are not living for God, but they are living for themselves and who seem to be just fine. And then there are those voices out there that, that say that there is no God at all, that when you die, you die. And, and he with the most toys when, di when he dies is, is the winner. So party every day. Make no mistake about it, ladies and gentlemen. These voices call for us to follow them. They are all false shepherds. So the question becomes, which shepherd will you follow? Well, hopefully the one whose voice you know. Here's the point. The more that we know the true shepherd the better we will all be at hearing, understanding, 
and following his voice. You see, Jesus' sheep listen to his voice, which leads me to ask you, whose voice do you listen to the most? I think in America, we are very much like the sheep in a fold at night. What I mean is that there are sheep from other flocks surrounding us all the time. We're in this thing together. Some sheep from our own flock, they tell us that we need to listen to the true shepherd's voice as I am doing to you this morning. But because we're with sheep from multiple flocks and gather together all in one place, we don't always see the value in doing that. What I'm trying to say is there are times when our shepherd, the true shepherd, calls us. But we might be so used to listening to the other shepherds that we listen to their voice instead of his. And when you look at the many dividing issues that are going on in our nation today, we have no choice but to choose sides. Because the truth is, the flocks are separating. And our choice will most certainly be based on the voice that we choose to listen to the most. Christ Jesus is the true shepherd, ladies and gentlemen. And he actually described himself as both the shepherd and the gate. Let's move on to John 10, verses 7 through 18. Therefore, Jesus said again, Very truly, I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice. And there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. At this point, the people still have not understood what Jesus is teaching them. So he plainly tells them in verse 7, I am the gate for the sheep. Some translations say, I am the door. Either way, the point is that he alone, he is the access point for the flock. And only by listening to our access point, the voice of Jesus, 
can we have and find fulfillment in the things that we search for, many of them that we search for through the stammering of the other voices that are in the background of our life. It is only through Christ Jesus. Four chapters later, Jesus makes this truth even more plain in John 14, 6, when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Our access point, Jesus truly wants to give us our heart's desire. John 10, 9 says, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. Now look at how this compares to David's writing in Psalm 23, verses one through three. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters or quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Jesus is that shepherd, ladies and gentlemen. He stands in contrast to the thief that is mentioned in verse 10, who, by the way, most scholars say is a reference to Satan, whose ultimate goal is to steal and kill and destroy the sheep. Well, Jesus came for his sheep to have life and to have it to the full. The birth of Christ that we celebrate every Christmas has purpose. His purpose was to give us true, abundant, fulfilling, and lasting life. So while knowing Jesus' voice is crucial, Understand that it automatically apply, implies that we truly listen to him and that as his sheep, we follow him. Because the amazing benefits that he mentions in following him, his salvation, and all these metaphors of safe passage and provision, well, they only come through Christ Jesus. The problem is that far too often we, we, we buy into a false sense of, of security. We trust in our employment, in our investments, in our government, Lord help us, our education, our bank accounts, our pensions, all that other stuff. We, we trust them over our shepherd. Whenever I speak to our missionaries, who live in the most remote and poor parts of the world, they tell of how receptive the people are to the gospel message of Jesus Christ. You see, these people are dirt poor, and they know it. While in America, the vast majority of us are spiritually poor, but we don't recognize that. It's like the medications that many of us take for a common cold. We have a sore throat, so we numb it with throat spray. If our nose is stuffy, we take a decongestant. If we are coughing and sneezing and have a headache, some acetaminophen will take care of it. We are so used to treating symptoms that we forget that the problem is a common cold. Well, the truth is that in our materialism, we are often treating symptoms as well. But when those things are stripped away from us 
In a time of crisis, like what happened during COVID-19, we are reminded of our need once again for the one true shepherd. And that's when we learn to know him. And that is when we learn to follow him like no other time. Well, Jesus continues in our text in verse 11. Again, let me read it. He said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. This is directly linked to his statement of giving us life. But it was not uncommon for shepherds, especially those who had large flocks, to employ helpers to tend to the sheep. These hired hands, they, they earned their, their wages not from the sheep, but from the owners of the sheep. They had no vested interest in them at all. And if you're looking for a contemporary parallel to that, you'll often find them behind the cash registers of fast food restaurants and department stores. Whenever a problem arises and you present it to one of these individuals, they will likely put themselves ahead of the company that they are working for, even though they're paid to put the company first in that context. Well, very much in the same way, a hired hand was not likely to risk his life in defending the sheep from the attack of a wolf or of a lion. Look at verses 12 and 13 again. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. Here's something that we must always remember. Jesus laid down his life for his sheep. As a matter of fact, four times in this text, Jesus mentions that he will give his life for his sheep. This is because he knows his sheep. As a shepherd, he has a close relationship with him. Look at verse 14. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for my sheep. Did you know that in the Middle East, shepherds don't raise sheep for their meat? Although in those days, they may have been killed for sacrifice or, or to offer up for a visiting guest. But their main purpose for keeping sheep was for their wool, for their milk, and so that they could produce more sheep. So close relationships were developed between the shepherd and the sheep that he was in charge of. Conversely, for the sake of efficiency, our society has become quite adept at reducing people to little more than a number. Your social security number, your driver's license number, your credit card number, your bank account number, they all point to this. If you forget your Rayleigh's extra card, they don't ask you for your name, they ask you for your phone number. Isn't it comforting to know that the God that you serve, to the God that you serve, that you are not just a number? He will never call you by the wrong name because he knows you personally and he knows you intimately. And for most people who have never been around sheep or understand what shepherding is all about, we, we never really thought that shepherds actually knew their sheep. But it is so true, and Jesus knows you, and he knows me. The imagery that he uses here supersedes a person's socioeconomic status. It does not matter if you're on the, the right list or not. It is intimate knowledge that comes from a true relationship 
with him. But also note that Jesus draws his flock not only from the nation of Israel, but he mentions another flock in verse 16. He says, I have sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. Jesus emphasizes his plan not to just draw from the nation of Israel, but also to draw Gentiles into his flock. And and we may tend to gloss over this very important point, but that's the reason that we are here today. As a church of of mostly non-Jewish members, we wouldn't be Christians if it weren't for God's plan to reach Gentiles with the gospel of Christ Jesus. But his Jewish audience didn't appreciate his comments about bringing Gentiles into the flock, nor did they like his many references talking about laying down and taking up his life as a command from God the Father. Look at verses 19 through 21. The Jews who heard these words were again divided. Many of them said he is demon-possessed and raving mad. Why listen to him? But others said these are not the sayings of a man possessed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? So the crowd's response here was divided. Some claimed that he was a crazy, demon-possessed man, while others said that his brilliant teaching and his powerful healing of this blind man couldn't have possibly come from somebody who was demon-possessed. I take great comfort in the fact that Jesus' opposition couldn't simply call him crazy because they knew that that explanation would not stick. His teachings may have been hard, but they were far too compelling to come from a man who was off his rocker. And even though the crowd was divided, they at least seemed to agree that this was not simply the work of just an ordinary man. So we've seen in the first half of chapter 10, Jesus announcing that he was the shepherd and the gate. These are two of his great I am statements found in John's gospel. As the gate, he is our access point for salvation and true abundant living. And as the shepherd, he is the one who cares for us. He is the one who leads us. And our responsibility as his sheep is to know the shepherd's voice and to secondly, follow him. But before we move on, we need to emphasize one more important point. Jesus' sheep have eternal life and will never perish. Remember Jesus' words when he came for his sheep? It was to give them life and so that they could have life to the full. He's in the business of of providing not just life, ladies and gentlemen, but abundant life to you and me. And that could only happen when Jesus fulfilled his mission. Jesus' mission always involved going to the cross. Don't ever forget that. He died in order to give us life, eternal life, and that would be a good place for every one of us to say, praise the Lord. You know, Jesus continues with his metaphor at the Feast of Dedication. This is a feast which is now called Hanukkah. It celebrates the Maccabean conquest of 165 BC. It's when Judas Maccabeus, the deliverer of the Jewish, he delivered the Jewish people, he restored temple worship, and he was a true political leader, 
like a shepherd to them. In fact, many asked him if he was the Christ, their expected deliverer. So let's pick it back up at verse 22. Then came the festival of dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was in the temple courts walking in Solomon's colonnade. The Jews who were there gathered around him saying, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you do not believe. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. You see, the Jews continually look for a political savior rather than looking for a spiritual savior, especially now that they were under Roman rule. So when this still divided crowd asked him if he was the Messiah, Jesus' response to them was, well, you haven't been listening because I already told you that I am. I want you to notice verses 28 and 29 because these sentences are constructed in a special way to draw the reader's attention to the points that are made here. The entire passage can be interpreted through the lens of these two verses. They present the powerful truth that, that Jesus' sheep can never be snatched from his flock. These words remind us that if we do belong to Jesus' flock, if we are true followers of Jesus Christ, then we can be sure of our eternal status as his own. 1 Peter 1.4 calls it an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. The word picture Jesus uses here is his hand underneath us and God's hand covering us, keeping us secure. You know, very recently, because of the COVID stay-at-home orders, shipping and trucking companies were at the forefront of keeping commerce moving forward in our country. People were forced to buy products and have them shipped to their home instead of going out and shopping, with the exception of grocery stores and a few select stores that they allowed to be open. And these companies took on the responsibility of making sure that the goods that were ordered were delivered safely to their destination. By boxes and by lots of bubble wrap, everyone wants their items to be delivered and be transported safely. The same thing happens when somebody decides to move to another home or move out of state with one of these major moving companies that comes and packs everything up. We want our stuff to arrive safely and without damage. That's one of the reasons that insurance is offered, because things can and do get broken during the shipping process. And yet while most of these companies have done a good job for the most part and have pretty good success rate at delivering things to our home safely, they cannot compare to God's perfection in guaranteeing his followers safe passage into eternity, safe passage into heaven. As a matter of fact, God doesn't offer insurance because there is none needed. We have the assurance of our salvation through the shed blood of Jesus. 
And he even says twice in verse 29, no one can snatch them away. Now, I think it's important to point out that we look at a much broader picture of this passage than Jesus' audience did at that time. We find comfort in all of this now, but the crowd wasn't very comfortable with Jesus' claims about his relationship with God when they heard him say that he and the Father are one. It was a tipping point for many of them. Look at verse 31. Again, his Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus said to them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? We are not stoning you for any good work, they replied, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Their explanation in verse 33 is unmistakable. You, a mere man, claim to be God. Their charge against him because of that is blasphemy. Listen, I believe that Jesus could have gone through his entire time on this earth, throughout his, his entire ministry, wowing people one second after another. He could have been done through constantly providing amazing miracles, which he performed many, but he could have done it one right after another if he wanted to and through his thought-provoking teaching. His mission, however, was in, involved making a bold and, a, and, and controversial claims. And they were claims that forced people to make a decision about him. If someone ever tries to tell you that, that, that Jesus did not claim to be God, then this is a great passage to point out to them. It can be a bit confusing, however, because Jesus' defense can be misunderstood. Let's go to verse 34, John 10, 34. Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law, I have said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be set aside, what about the one whom the father set apart as his very own and sent into the world? Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy because I said I am God's son? Do not believe me unless I do the works of my father. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the father is in me and I in the father. Again, they tried to seize him, but he escaped their grasp. Then Jesus went back across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing in the early days. There he stayed, and many people came to him. They said, though John never performed a sign, all that John said about this man was true. And in that place, many believed in Jesus. I once heard a representative from the Jehovah Witnesses say that Jesus' point here was that, in a sense, that we are all gods of some sort. And that's why it was okay for Jesus himself to call himself God. And if you look at it from that standpoint, it would certainly preserve the Jehovah Witness belief that Jehovah alone is the one true God and that Jesus doesn't compare. But if that were true, then you would probably have to insinuate that Jesus was employing some sort of biblical backpedaling here, that he was distancing himself from his comment that he and the Father are one. But that is not what Jesus meant, and that is not what he's doing here. You see, the scripture that he quoted when he said, is it not written in your law, I have said you are God's, that comes from Psalm 
82.6. And it references wicked rulers and it pronounces judgment upon them. The word, words gods or Elohim was not an uncommon reference for leaders as ones appointed by God to rule. And the precedent for referring to people as gods in the scripture was used by Jesus momentarily to capture their attention. But this was not Jesus' ultimate point here. His point was that those rulers were mere recipients of God's word. So if people accepted that reference for those recipients, they should then certainly accept his more exalted title or role as the one who was actually sent from God above. So understand, Jesus was not watering down his, his heavenly title at all. He was simply making a case that it be accepted by the religious leaders and the people of Israel. This is why he says in verse 36, what about the one whom the father set apart as his very own and sent into the world? Why then do you, you, you accuse me of blasphemy? Because I said, I am God's son. Jesus, Jesus often calls himself the son of God. And it's sometimes difficult for us to, to look at that as a divine title. I think for many people, it, it conjures up images of the children of, of methodic, or excuse me, uh, mythical Greek gods, such, such as Hercules. People who are depicted as being something more than human, but something less than God. Well, this is not how Jesus used the term son of God. And it is not how the people understood it. The term in this passage directly ties into his statement that he and the father are one. And the people's understanding that he was claiming to be God and their desire to stone him for blasphemy. I mean, this passage doesn't end with people saying, oh, son of God, never mind. Thanks for clarifying. You're right. There is a precedence here. Perhaps we got a little carried away. We thought you were claiming to be God. No, the passage ends with the people still being angry, still wanting to arrest him. They wanted to drag him outside the city walls and they wanted to stone him. As a matter of fact, Jesus left Jerusalem after that only to return a week before his crucifixion. Well, the timelines of these truths help us to appreciate the celebration of the birth of Jesus, but at the same time, it allows us to, to remember his ultimate mission and why he came. His plan was to call his sheep and offer them eternal, abundant life so they would never perish and so that they would never be stolen away from him. And as comforting as those truths may be, as we move into a time of, of taking communion together by participating in the Lord's Supper, I wanna ask you this morning to consider your role as a sheep. Perhaps for you, all the competing voices that we hear going on in our, in our uh, culture, maybe they become far too easy for you to listen to. So much so that it is compromising your ability to hear the true shepherd's voice. 
Perhaps following Christ is something that you have been effective at in some areas of your life, but many other areas of your life you're not. Well, let me encourage you to renew your commitment to him today. You may be here, you may be watching online. You don't necessarily label yourself as one of Christ's sheep. Well, his invitation still stands for you. He is offering you a true, abundant, and fulfilling life. But the only way, and the only, the only way that he is able to offer this to you is by what he accomplished on the cross. When he fulfilled his mission, that is what we remember. That is what we celebrate as we participate in communion together. I want to ask the, the worship team to come forward, and I'd like to ask the ushers to come forward so that we can pass out the communion emblems to all of you. You cannot fully understand the purpose of communion without first knowing who Jesus is. And, I, and I'd have to say that I believe through our series that we're doing in the book of John, Jesus is making it eminently clear who he is and why he came. And as we said a couple of times in the message this morning, he came to fulfill his mission. We celebrate Christmas and it's such a special time, the birth of Christ, but we often don't look ahead at the horror of what followed and that was his death. However, as it said in the scripture, he says, I lay down my own life and I take it back up when I choose. That was his mission. He knew that was coming. We look at it and we think, oh my, how could things go so wrong? That was the plan. There needed to be a sacrifice for us. Christ was that sacrifice. He came and he died so that we could live. Can you grasp that this morning? This is the message of the gospel. Christ came and was the substitute. His shed blood is what cleanses us of our sin. It's what gives, offers us salvation. It's what gives us eternity in the presence of God. And why more people don't follow Jesus literally amazes me. And how many lost are out there who don't even want to hear his name? I think that goes to show you what an effect our enemy has in our culture today. Thus the reason why it's important for us to listen to his voice and not the voices of all these other false shepherds. He died on that Roman cross. It was a horrific death. And, and he carried with, it, with him our, our sin, our guilt, our shame. He covered it all with his blood. That means he wiped it away. It means that we are forgiven of our sins through his ultimate sacrifice. But he, he laid down his life, but he, he didn't stay dead because three days later, he rose with resurrection power and he offers us that same power through eternal life with him. Jesus told us always to remember, never forget what he accomplished on the cross. And that's why we participate in communion like we do. It is a time that will always be an, a part of our ongoing worship, our ongoing adoration of, of our Lord and Savior. And I say this often, but it is so, so true. We can never go about this time in a ritualistic way. Oh, it's communion Sunday. I love communion because you're used to the ritual. This has to become personal. We don't do this to check off our list of things that good Christians do. We do this to connect 
or in some cases to reconnect with the Christ who died for us as we are reminded of the great gift that he offers us. It is the gift of eternal life when our time on this earth comes to an end. You see, we all have a spirit. That spirit is eternal. When our bodies die, our spirit does not. It continues to live. And your spirit will either spend eternity in heaven in the presence of God, or it will spend eternity in hell completely void of the presence of God. And it is all based upon a decision that you will make to either receive and follow the Lord or to ignore him and act as if he is not real. And this communion time is generally a time for those who have accepted Christ to remember and to rejoice and to celebrate what God has done for us. But if you don't know Jesus as Lord and Savior today, now is the time for you to receive salvation. Because the Bible offers us instruction in how to go about doing this. And it warns against anyone doing this in an unworthy manner. It's in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-seven through 29. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself. And so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who, who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself not discerning the Lord's body. So this is the time when, as the scripture says, we all must examine ourselves. Are we carrying around unconfessed sin? Are we harboring unforgiveness against someone else? Is our heart in alignment with the things that God wants to do in our life, or are we continually keeping him an arm's distance from us because we really don't want the fullness of God in our life because we fear what that might look like. Now is the time to ask Jesus to forgive you of your sin, to ask, you for, ask for forgiveness for your unforgiveness towards others. And then you leave here with the intent of clearing up that unforgiveness that you have shown to another person so as not to partake, partake in communion together in an unworthy way. Before we do communion, I want everyone to bow your heads in prayer. I want to prepare our hearts for this most sacred moment. We're going to reserve a moment of silence where all you're going to hear is the music playing softly behind me. It's a time for you to pray to God on your own. Whatever you need to bring before him, bring it before him. If you need forgiveness, ask him to forgive you. He will cleanse you of all unrighteousness. If you are unsaved, if you've never received salvation, ask Jesus to forgive you of your sin, become the Lord of your life, and you will then be able to participate in communion in a worthy manner. Let's take a moment to pray to our Lord and Savior. Let's use this time to remove any obstacles that would be in our way and would prevent us from participating in communion in a non-God-honoring way.
Father, you have heard our words. More importantly, you've read our heart. We ask for your forgiveness. Forgive us for the times that we have fallen short of your glory. When we have kept quiet and we should have spoken up on your behalf. When we've spoken up and interjected things when we had no business in doing so. Forgive us for our anger. Forgive us for some of the things that proceed from our mouth that are not glorifying to you or to our neighbors or to our family. Father, forgive us for anything that we have done that has caused an obstacle or created an obstacle between you and us. Thank you for the blood of Jesus. Thank you that you sent Christ to die for our sins so that we could come to you and know that your grace is sufficient to cover whatever we've done. Thank you for the forgiveness of sin. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. On the night that Jesus was arrested and betrayed, he had taken the bread and after he had given thanks, he said, this represents my body, which is broken for you. And whenever you do this in the future, he said, do so in remembrance of me. And as you eat of this bread this morning, I want you to be reminded of the, the bruised and broken and battered body of our Lord and Savior. His body was broken for you. The scriptures also say that by his stripes, we are healed. You may eat of the bread. same way after supper he took the cup and he said this cup represents my blood it is the new covenant in my blood and every time you drink of this do so in remembrance of me and as you drink this juice this morning I want you to be reminded of the precious blood of the sinless lamb and son of God that was shed for you to wash away your sin you may drink of the juice Would you all stand to your feet as we sing a song?
in prayer. Father, thank you for this day. What a blessed day you've given us. Thank you for your presence. It's been so sweet in this place today. From the first song to the very end, Lord, you've been here with us. Not just in our hearts, but your tangible presence has been in this place. And we thank you for that. As we go our separate ways today, Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would go with us, guiding and directing our steps, places we go, the things that we do. Father, I pray that we would be bright lights that shine in this dark world, so bright that people would have to know what it is that's different about us, and that they would literally come and ask us what is different about us, and we can explain your goodness to them. In fact, I pray, Father, you'll give all of us an opportunity to share your goodness with someone this week, and when that time comes, that we would not shy away, but we would step in boldly, knowing that, as your word says, you will give us the things to say and it will be better than anything we could have come up with ourselves. Pray, Father, that you would keep us safe from this new strain of COVID that is running rampant right now. Pray your protection over our church family, over this body of believers and everyone in our community. Pray that you keep us safe from other sicknesses and diseases. I ask that you would stand in the way of any accidents that might come our way to prevent us from gathering together as a church family and worshiping you in spirit and in truth. We thank you for this time together. I thank you for every person in this place. As they leave here, let your spirit go with them. Your blessings be upon them. That everything that their hands touch, Father, would prosper this week. And we ask it in the precious and holy name of Jesus. Amen and amen. Thank you for being here. God bless you.